many libertarians kind of half defend many leftist ideas like critical race theory and and systemic racism and sometimes it seems they're trying too hard to me you know right i think in some ways it's comforting that someone believes in rights and so on it's just when you realize that their conception is that screwed up it, it takes some of the fun out of it i don't see how they believe in rights I just don't see how the Indian leftist believes in rights at all. Their conceptions of it are so messed up. It's very nice if we can approach people from all sides and say, we have something for you. So it's generally good rhetoric to do that. I, I guess I prefer the other form of rhetoric, the harder, harsher form, the Hebrew prophet form of rhetoric, which is you have to give up your sins and your sins are what you love the most. And, uh, but it's, it's so much better to just get, get rid of it and uh, get rid of your race obsession just get rid of it yes that's yeah. my preferred method of dealing with all these issues on the left and the right uh the tradition obsession that rightists often have i said just get rid of it it's not tradition that you really want defending it's it's just what you want to do i mean most people i think would be happier in a traditional society i actually think this is the case i think leftists are are deeply screwed up because of their commitment to anti-traditionalism for instance yeah i don't understand how that's any any necessary part of of liberalism but it's not because it's tradition that you're for it it's because you probably it turns out most people want to do it um you know, I mean, there's a reason why until fairly recently people had kids. They wanted kids. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, you don't need to, I mean, and you also want to do several little things that lead to kids. Um, right, right. Th that's, and that's always very popular. But Several, I'm trying to think of the uh, second and third one, but anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Movies, maybe. Uh, anyway. <laughs> Cars with back seats that are open. Right, I don't know. That's right, that's right. <laughs> anyway. Uh, this is This Week in Common Sense, and uh, we're ready to go. Yes. We had an exciting week with uh, President Biden, and we didn't write about this per se, but goes overseas and doesn't stumble hardly. <laughs> well, at least, the, at least the media doesn't pick up and and publicize it stumbles. So, I mean, if the president stumbles and no one's there to broadcast it to you, did he really stumble? I blogged about one of his stumbles that I thought was just astounding. When he basically telling us, telling the world that Russia has some problems in their foreign policy, like Syria, for instance. <laughs> yeah, was... and, and then he mentions Libya about four or five times. And Libya is the United States problem, it has nothing right. to do with Russia. Right. And and that's that what I thought was a great, I thought was just the best stumble of all time. We linked to it, I think, in, in uh, Thursday's piece. Yeah. Uh, so. How about that? But uh, at thisiscommonsense.org. Well, I don't think we linked to it because it hadn't happened yet uh, on Monday's piece, which is the Biden-Boris censorship alliance and um and we'll get to the censorship alliance uh what a great thing glad we could team up with her majesty's government uh but but what what you're talking about let's just take a second because we we did a link on thursday but we didn't really go into any detail and it's worth some detail because uh what happened basically is that biden was speaking and it seems like he made a slip and kept saying uh, instead of saying syria to blame the russians he mentioned libya as tim pointed out but it's it's to me it's kind of interesting because it is i think a freudian slip and because it was obama the media, you know, really because they liked him. And that's the way that's the way journalism works in the United States. If you like the president as a reporter or as an outlet, then you don't criticize him. You don't tell people bad things about him. I mean, that would be so socially unacceptable as your left wing uh, cocktail parties. And, you know, and I guess if you're on the right, if you're Fox, you hide the stuff that that Republicans do. That's what journalism is apparently now all about. And, and so people don't have enough appreciation for what a complete screw up Libya was and, and how in essence it was the opposite of everything 
Obama promised. I mean, you could you could kind of see in certain things, oh, he didn't like what was going on in Afghanistan. He had to change his mind somehow. Or, or in Syria, he kind of got dragged into that. He was just trying to do the right thing. But Libya? Libya, one, being a leader who is a, a lunatic, or was before he was murdered by the mob, uh, in, in the revolution that we encouraged and defended and took part in. Uh, but he had basically come to the U.S., ad admitted wrongdoing here and there, given up nukes or the attempt to get nukes, all kinds of things that you would want people to do. And I'm not endorsing that particular aspect of our foreign policy, but in essence, um, if you're going to go around making deals with dictators and evil, bad people, it seems like you still should kind of keep your word. <laughs> and, you know, if, if you're the good guy, keeping your words kind of part of it. And so to, to really decide we're going to throw in with NATO and go just topple this person and then to realize no plan behind it, no plan to, I mean, whatever nation building plan, we can pretty much rest assured would have been a failure. But not having any plan, boy, funny how that is invariably a failure. So it's, <clears throat> it, it just is so ridiculous. And to think that Biden, either because, you know, his, his mind is going or because he just has this guilt complex for screwing up the world, uh, for him to say Libya again and again was somewhat uh, amusing. But we digress. And, and really Monday's script, uh, our four billionth on freedom of speech in one way or another, because we live in a world in which Everyone wants freedom of speech everywhere, even in regimes where they have denied them any ability to even think or talk about freedom of speech. They still want it. Every opportunity they can ask for it, they do. And we love it. And yet it's constantly under attack. And it's not just under attack in totalitarian places like China. Uh, it is under attack in the U.S. constantly. The Boris here is Boris Johnson. Britain has never had the same attitude toward the First Amendment, <laughs> maybe because they still haven't gotten rid of the Queen. Come on, guys, let's, let's kind of move it up a little bit. I mean, you know, maybe a hundred years of having a Queen after it's ridiculous is, is okay or forgivable, but let's not have two or three or four hundred years of it. I mean, it's just silly. But anyway, their conception of the First Amendment, it's much easier to sue people who are, you know, well-known there, uh, libel laws, that sort of thing, uh, uh, are not quite the same. There isn't the same level of protection for speech. And, of course, they have a new online safety legislation. Online safety. I mean, who doesn't want to be safe? But they're looking to regulate in ways that under the First Amendment, there's no constitutional way for us to regulate. But we point out in this piece, as we often do, that when the government is actively encouraging, conjoling, signing contracts with social media companies and, and pushing them to censor, that is not a neutral situation in which that social media outfit decided to just censor on their own. That's not, that isn't how it works. The government can't entice them, pay them, threaten them, and then say, oh, they're just doing it, they're private. So, and, and we sure don't want any sort of legislation. And, and frankly, even with the First Amendment there, that's just obvious that any decent court that's at all honest is going to strike it down. It will not stop our Congress from passing bills that they know are unconstitutional. So we, we have to fight these things if they get in our legislature. And we just pointed up that in essence, here is, you know, the, the G7 got together. We didn't write anything about the fact that you know, they did come out and, and condemn China for some things, which is nice, although NATO took it much, much further and basically said they're adding China to their list of dangers in the world that they are preparing to counter, uh, which, you know, I, 
I, I'm a dove. I'm not a, I'm not a hawk, but sounds, you know, it's music to my ears. I, I think, what do you do with a place where they constantly are threatening neighbors, putting people in concentration camps, you know, uh, they're just, they're not good folks. <laughs> I always think back to that video of Biden in China uh, or, or talking about China and saying, they're not bad folks, folks, <laughs> and thinking, well, the only thing wrong with that is, yes, they are. But, um, but anyway, so, so the G7, you know, they get together and there's obviously things that countries need to talk about with each other. But uh, as we'll get to on Thursday, uh, one of the things they're talking about is how to raise everybody's taxes, not how to lower them, but how to raise them. But they also um, will at times get together and do what governments do, which is how can we, and it's the same thing with the tax thing, how can we build a better mouse trap for our people? How can we trap our people to make sure that we can extract as much money from them? Well, how can we trap? trap or track our people so that we can kind of stop them from saying that or hearing that. And, and so to the degree that our leaders go overseas and talk to someone about how they can share ways to silence us and shut us up, uh, no thank you. And, um, and, and this that's, is Britain's Boris. Boris yeah, Johnson. Boris Johnson. And uh, that's... We're not talking about some Russian guy named Boris. I mean, one would be, one innocently could, you know, think, oh, that's some Russian guy. We don't want, they want we, you know, but it's really actually our biggest ally in the world. England yeah. is America's biggest yeah. ally. And England's biggest ally is conspiring with our current president to squelch our speech. Yes, yes. And it, 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 it kind of demonstrates why eternal vigilance is the, uh, is the only way. <clears throat> because as you say, in, in many ways, Britain is the best country out there again and again and again on all kinds of issues. Human rights issues is what I'm talking about, not, you know, not, not soccer or something else. I'm talking about politically in terms or of dentistry or anything like that. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and and so, you know, it's, it's kind of sad to see them to see them in essence, uh, you know, on the on doing the same sorts of things that would allow Xi Jinping in China to say, hey, what are you, what are you, you know, what are you coming against me? I'm just, I'm just trying to keep people safe online in China the same way that Boris Johnson and uh, folks in the UK are trying to keep people safe on, uh, online. So that's, well, that's not good. Well, it would seem that we really should go to Thursday next because that is about more g7 stuff right and uh, this, and this is has boris johnson coming back parroting biden's you know we're building back better together line <laughs> and he did it in a, such an obnoxiously stupid way or silly way that I, I that i really appreciate this yes yes and and the title is how about that and um and in essence this is boris johnson somehow making the point that that you know we need we need two things really we need taxes to be raised so everybody's equal tax wise but then to play into this whole thing that everything must be equity that it's got to be you know uh uh you know uh, we have to have this many women and this many men and and playing into the whole Everything is your your race, your sex, your ethnicity, your orientation, your preference, your gender, your whatever else that, that can be invented next, instead of people and individualism, and um, and so it's it's you know in, instead of trying to uh, maximize. Uh, revenue, of course, across the, the world. And that's what they're trying to do for governments. And that's, I guess, what you would expect governments to try to do. But it would be amazing. And I think it's always, it's always good to look at kind of the flip everything on its head. And when you realize that a group like the G7 is never, ever, or, or a group of agencies in the federal government get together, 
those folks are never, ever, ever going to come up with how we can use less revenue, how we can cut taxes, uh, you know, the G7, how our countries can be less engaged in everything that's happening around the world or less interventionist, if you want to put a negative spin on it. And, um, and I think that comes out uh, even, even the, like I, I've said for years, when you talk about term limits, the worst people are sound good because they love, you know, even people I disagree with on all kinds of things, they like term limits and they say, and in essence, when, when you think about the G7 and, and governance at that level, it is so uh, just taking for granted that they have been given some mandate to rule because of course, these are the leaders of our countries, our country, this president is limited in all kinds of ways. He's not one iota better than anybody else and has any more power rights. I mean, he has more power, but, but in essence, you know, he then goes on the, on the federal, on the uh, international stage and he has less power. Any treaty that would be made, the Congress has to ratify. And yet it always seems like they're the leaders who are, you know, who can do everything at the G7. And the G7 is not, you know, they're not passing legislation. They're not even the UN, which is kind of not really a functional body. But it, it, it is funny when, when they get together, the way the media treats them is these world leaders. And I don't think it's ever really mentioned that they don't have any power standing on that, on those podiums. And of course the meme, and you, you posted it. I, I, I don't know if it was on, on what page you posted on Facebook, the meme of, uh, of uh, Xi Jinping behind him as if they're chess pieces and he's moving them around, which is sadly uh, way too accurate in, in some ways. But, it, but there is that, that sense, I think, from our own media that this is how the, you know, these people are running the world. And they're not running the world, or they shouldn't be running the world. And to a large degree, they're not. Um, but if they were, the sad part is, I'm not sure that it would be run any better. I think it might be run worse. And, and I'm, I see myself, I've always kind of seen myself as a citizen of the world. I love America. I love the American dream. I love freedom. I love the Declaration of Independence. You know, so I've, I've always seen myself as very American. And yet at the same time, what's beautiful about America isn't the plot of land or the, you know, the, the type of person here, because type of people, they're the same everywhere I've ever been. So I've always kind of seen myself as a citizen of the world. And I, I, I like the idea of nations getting together, individuals from around the world getting together, not representing their nations, as we've discussed several times uh, in recent years here. But, um, but at the same time, I would never want to give up one iota of sovereignty, U.S. sovereignty, because to me, that sovereignty is my sovereignty and your sovereignty. In other words, when, when we, if the U.S. was, was just a, you know, authoritarian state, where the government dictates everything, well, then I could care less whether they give up sovereignty to some international organization. But I live in a country where there's all these listed rights, and I don't want to give that up to any, you know, international organization. And frankly, we need all kinds of ways to reform government and democratic controls like initiative and referendum and reforms like small districts and all kinds of things that would allow citizens to have a lot more check. Uh, but already, if we got no more powers, we have more powers in the United States of America to make political change. And look, I've been screwed more than a few times in court and by politicians and administrative snafus and everything else. So I'm not, I'm not naive thinking, oh, everything's wonderful. I know it ain't easy, but we have that power. And so you would, you know, I would never want to give it up to, to try to, to try to somehow influence power through something like the EU, 
which is just a mess. Uh, or the UN, which I mean, come on, I don't, I don't even have to say anything more. Anybody who's who's been awake for a few seconds in the last 50 years knows that the UN is dysfunctional. So, um, so anyway, that's, uh, that's my two cents on international versus national. The, the key is citizens ought to be in charge. And that's why we want federalism all the way, but we don't want to give one iota of sovereignty up uh, internationally. Let's talk. Let's work together. Let's not give up any sovereignty. Well, the other um, international affair common sense piece this week was the 400 million, which is today's piece. Yes. Does it seem reasonable to talk about that now? I'm going to allow it this, this one time. Uh, yes, I think it is a good one to, uh, to talk about. And uh, because it, it, um, it, and it doesn't relate to the G7 per se or, or that, but it sure relates to where we are uh, across the globe. So much of these stories, and I don't know that I've ever really specifically addressed this in any of the scripts I've written about COVID-19 and the, and the Chinese role, but the Chinese Communist Party, which controls China, behaved so abhorrently. And they've done it before. They did it with SARS. And now they've done it big time, covering it up, basically arresting and browbeating doctors who wanted to say, hey, there's a problem, destroying evidence, blocking any investigation, I mean, their behavior is that of a criminal. And so, I mean, you, you could see someone making a mistake, whether it's a lab. And, and look, it could be they made a mistake in their military bioweapon lab. Let's face it, the U.S. has military bioweapon labs. I mean, we, there's all kinds of things happening. It, it wouldn't mean that they were criminal, evil, terrible people. I mean, they are as far as the Chinese Communist Party. I don't get me wrong, but that one aspect would not mean that. So it's worse than just saying, hey, we made a mistake, sorry, and 600,000 Americans are dead and what, 4 million people around the world. But they're dead because they covered it up. There's all kinds, there was a study early on that said 95% of the deaths at that point uh, could have been prevented had China been honest and open and, and said, hey, we got a problem. How do we stop it? And and in stories about COVID and whether it came from a lab leak or why don't we know and how can we find out? And was Trump just, you know, Trump's a bad guy. And that's why we couldn't talk about the lab leak because it had to be Trump's fault. But it's not our fault for lying to you because Trump's a bad guy. So everything is his fault. But in all of those stories, what's missing is two or three or four or five paragraphs about why we don't know anything that has nothing to do with Trump and has nothing to do with our media being partisan, has nothing to do with anything about it except China being ruled as a totalitarian state. And the impact of that is that they, information gets gets uh, blocked. People aren't able to speak out. People aren't able to warn each other. And the wisdom of crowds doesn't doesn't take effect. There's no wisdom there. And uh, this, there was a piece in the Washington Post by David Van Driel, uh, and uh, it was just so enlightening. Not really enlightening. I shouldn't say that. I mean, I just agreed with everything he said. And I, I've read him many a time. And trust me, lots of times I don't agree with everything he says. In fact, lots of times I don't agree with anything he says. But he made the point that there is a difference, believe it or not. In fact, in, in the commentary, I say, is it finally morning in Washington? I mean, it's like oh, somebody got a clue. But he makes the point that free societies are better than totalitarian big government societies. I mean, he, he never mentioned maybe we ought to apply that same analysis to the United States of America, but he's absolutely right. And one of the things he points out is he brings up the one child policy. 
And I have a little allusion to the fact that, of course, you know, totalitarianism, one of the things they can do that's catastrophic is give us a, a pandemic. But uh, the columnist talks about the one child policy and what a huge mistake it is. And, you know, and and points out that, you know, he points out that, of course, in China, there were 50 million people that died uh, as he said, entirely self-inflicted through the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution. Cultural Revolution being something that uh, kind of the Black Lives Matter, uh, not all Black Lives Matter, but the, the, the folks who like the critical race theory and so on seem to want to have here, big mistake. Uh, but both of those killed like 50 million people. And then, of course, he talks about the one-child policy. Well, it turns out that according to Chinese government's own propaganda during the one child policy, they claimed that they had prevented 400 million babies from being born. And they don't mean theoretical babies. They mean actual living organisms from being born. Well, I don't think that they were specific, you know, uh, the Chinese government doesn't footnote things and then uh, come before the public and, and be browbeaten on exactly what all the facts are. So they weren't terribly specific, but that's exactly right, Tim, that, that what we're talking about here and what, what kills me, no pun intended, what kills me is that I see this as a kid. I remember Molly Yard on Phil Donahue's show debating, uh, what's his name, Randall Terry, and pro-life, pro-choice, and Randall Terry hitting her uh, verbally, saying, hey, you support what they're doing in China, the one-child policy, and her not saying, how, could, how dare you say that, but instead explaining how courageous the one child policy was because they're getting a handle on family planning. And I think that because America was debating abortion and of course we're totally self-absorbed that we never appreciated what the one child policy was. And you could see it being, okay, you've had one child, uh, Mrs. Chen, and, uh, and now you really can't have any more. So let's talk about how we could, you know, have birth control. And Mrs. Chin saying, oh, great, because I only wanted one child. And thank goodness the state recognized that. And how can we do that, doctor? What happened instead was when Mrs. Chen might be having her second child, somebody ratted her out and they would come and they would murder the child in front of her. That's what would happen, which is slightly different than that conversation that like my governor, Ralph Northam in, in Virginia, you know, talked about after a child was born in a kind of abortion that didn't quite happen and the, the babies out there in the room that, well, they would have a conversation about it. But in China, not so much conversation, more murder the baby in front of the, the parent. And I'm referring to One Child Nation. I, th I think it's on a lot of the streaming services, may even be available now on, on YouTube. But there's, there's several uh, long pieces about it that give you much of the information. But it is a documentary about the One Child Policy by a woman who is adamantly says in the film, I'm pro-choice, but makes the point that there is a difference between having a choice to have an abortion. And I have to be very pro-life. I'm not, I'm not interested in the government really getting involved, frankly, because I don't think that they can help. But if you ever ask me, the answer is your life's going to be much better if you have that baby and don't, don't end that pregnancy. And I, and, and I'm, you know, uh, no matter what the circumstance is, that's likely to be my opinion, meaning 100% of the time. So that's kind of where I'm coming at from it with. But she was very pro-choice. And whether you're pro-life or pro-choice, if you don't understand the difference between a woman having a, an abortion because she decides she doesn't want to carry that child to term, and a woman having an abortion because someone has a gun to her head, 
and then later being sterilized because they sterilized all kinds of women against their will. These are serious crimes against humanity. When you think of totalitarianism, when you're talking about controlling people's wombs in that way, that's not even being pro-life in America. I mean, you can be the most adamant pro-choice person. You cannot look at someone who wants a law outlawing abortion as the same as someone who would come into your home and murder your child because they don't think you have any right to have more children than they say. And of course, the interesting thing is they've liberalized the policy. And they said, uh, what was it, a few years ago, I think it was 2016, they said, you can have two. And in some rural areas, they were allowing three. What generous, wonderful people. And now they're allowing everyone to have three. The problem is China's become wealthier, especially in parts, and people aren't having as many kids. And it's not necessarily a very kid-friendly place because it is sort of a, a forced mercantilist, capitalist, go make some money right now and we'll take what we want of it type society. And so it's, it, you know, from what I read in article after article, Chinese folks are not wanting to have as many kids anymore. And, and so they've got, a, they've got a huge problem. And a lot of people can look at it and say, as, as, as uh, Von Drill did, uh, that it's central planning run amok. It shows the stupidity of central planning and so on. But to me, the lesson is just a hundred miles beyond that. that and, and he voiced it, that big government can do good by helping good ideas, but that basically throughout history, it's always done so much bad by helping bad ideas than it has done good. And, and, and of course, it's not as if it's a contest. It's not as if we're gonna go, okay, no more government because it's done more bad than good. We know government's gonna be around because if we didn't have public government, we'd all end up with private government something to protect us from someone who's aggressing, something to protect our property and the, and the smarts to team up with other people so that we're not alone. So, you know, that, this, this idea of government is not gonna go away. How do you control it? And frankly, in the United States of America where we've had more control arguably than anywhere else in the world, we're focused almost all the time on how little control we have. And we're right to be focused on that because we don't have nearly enough. And because who wants to kind of go, oh, well, we're wonderful every day. That's no fun. The, the way that you become more wonderful and more wonderful is constant innovation, constant change, constantly looking at yourself as an individual or your, or your company or your household or your world and saying, how can I improve? So, uh, Anyway, whatever, wherever I was going with that rant, that's the end, that we can actually improve things. And uh, it doesn't really take a totalitarian government to help us. To some degree, doesn't it make sense if your government is socialist and the socialists run everything? I mean, that's the idea of socialism is that the government runs the economy. Well, the economy really is everything. I mean, that is it, everything's affected. And one of the most important parts of an economy are the human beings that are coming up to replace the old ones right as yeah. population i mean the one of the pillars of economics has always been population theory from malthus on it's been population theory and so a socialist society is going to regulate who has children that's what's going to happen if you're a socialist you're going to regulate you're going to regulate the production of children who has them who gets to have them people who look upon that as a great thing. Uh, I don't get it because I don't see the government doing a very nice, it's not gonna be nice, you know, it's not gonna be a nice thing at all. No, I, I think we have people in America who see families of 14 kids and which used to not be so wild, but now is very unusual. And it's almost like they're angry at them that they, who are they to think that they can have 14 kids? And, and the truth is coming from a family with six kids, one of six, um, you know, the best, but anyway, just one of six. And, uh, and uh, I, I love that. 
And, and I think about the one child policy, even if it wasn't forced sterilizations and forced abortions and infanticide, murdering born children in horrific ways. And of course, toward the end of it, the Chinese super capitalist in, a, in every evil way um, imaginable. It's like the, the fusion of evil socialism with maniacal form of like mercantilist capitalism. But toward, um, you know, af after a decade or so of that, uh, maybe, maybe a few years short of a decade, they begin to take some of these children to get the market value for them. And so a lot of the, uh, you know, adoptions and other things are facilitated by the one child policy. So they monetize it much in the same way <clears throat> that, don't get me wrong, China, you know, wanted to torture and kill the Falun Gong people for the own, their own political purposes, but then realized, hey, wait a second, we can also make money by selling their body parts. So these, you know, uh, when you think of the innovation, capitalist innovation, uh, you know, I, and and I I say it with a little chuckle in the voice, just because I don't know how you think about these things all the time without without some sort of protection from just crying all the time. Uh, but I mean, this this is what happens. This is a government in China that we want to make sure we don't upset too much because we want to work with them on climate change. We're insane if we think things like that. First of all, because they're not going to work with us on climate change. They're going to do whatever's in their interest now, not a hundred years from now. These are not thoughtful, you know, liberal pluralistic folks. Anyway, it's uh, so I, I was, uh, I've, I've wanted to bring out more of this one child policy just because to me, it has, it is the most clear, obvious totalitarian aspect uh, when in history ha has government had the ability to be that totalitarian and combined it with the desire to be that totalitarian. And you're right, Tim, it is part of it is that whole control of all the economy. You have to control how many people. And when you think of all the victims of communism, tens and tens and maybe a hundred million plus victims, but so many of them starvation. Starvation in the Ukraine, in some cases, intentional forced starvation, but starvation in China and some of that the same way, Pol Pot in Cambodia, most of the millions who died there died from starvation, which is not a good way to go. And uh, anyway, it's just, you know, and you see these horrific crimes, and then you think there are people who kind of go, well, we need communism or Mao, but Mao did a lot for his people or something. Yeah, the, the ones that were able to survive were able to survive. He didn't do anything for them. And, and then to think that this particular thing, the one child policy, the West missed it because we were so busy with our own argument about abortion that we, you know, kind of forgot what choice and freedom is all about and how, like this columnist says, freedom is better than tyranny. I think he's right. I mean, I know he's going out on a limb at the Washington Post, but I think he's right. Well, hey, we should, we should uh, get to our last two, uh, which are kind of sad. <laughs> but why don't we take uh, days off first, because... I don't think we have to spend a lot of time uh, to depress our, our audience. In, uh, what is it? It's New Jersey. Um... The piece is called Day Off, Absurdity On, and it's from June 16th. Yes, and it's, it's about uh, Morris County, New Jersey, and they are doing their school calendar, and, you know, what are the holidays and so on. And, of course, you know, in, in some areas of the country where there aren't Muslim folks or there aren't many Jewish folks or what have you, you know, all the holidays are Christian holidays um, that are that are going to be off. And in fact, because the country is largely populated by people who are Christians, Christmas is a national holiday. So you don't have to be a Christian. You're going to get the day off because it's a federal holiday. 
Um, and Thanksgiving, which kind of has some religious overtones, you know, the same same thing. And then you have your spring holiday, which is Easter, and it's all designed because the the largest group are Christians. And you know, you can open your business and demand everybody come to work on on Easter uh, or on Christmas, but they're not going to show up. So you pretty much have to accommodate that. And the truth is. Uh, growing up, you know, I, I was eight when I moved from New Jersey to Arkansas outside of, uh, you know, kind of equal distance, I guess, to uh, uh, Philadelphia and, and New York City. And it was an area of the country in which you had a lot of different religions, not so much Muslim folks at, at that time, but you had Jews and Protestants and Catholics and so on. And some of the holidays and things were different. And you develop kind of an appreciation for knowing certain things about somebody else's religion because, oh, this is that holiday and we're off school because it's a Jewish holiday. Well, what is, you know, Yom Kippur or what is, you know, Hanukkah or what have you? And, um, and of course, in, in, in my neighborhood, I don't have kids in the public school. And of course, my kids now are, are out of school. My last one is, uh, is in graduate stuff college-wise, but um, they didn't go to public school, so I wouldn't have known what the holidays were. But I can tell you, I know when Ramadan is because I can see my neighbors and they're doing different things and, and they're getting together and stuff. And, and I don't know about you, but I like it when I see people get together. Even if I wasn't invited, even if it's not my celebration, I'd love to see people get together and celebrate. So you notice it on your street when people are coming over to the, you know, the Joneses house or whoever, or the Muhammad's house uh, and you like it. And so I, I look at this, what's happening in Morris County, New Jersey as sort of the worst of all possible worlds, because here's what they've decided to do. And it, I, I shouldn't say decided. I think there's still a chance. I, I don't think this is settled yet, but they have proposed this and there seems to be momentum for it, that they're just going to call all these days off. When you're out for Ramadan or Id, maybe uh, I said that wrong, but whatever the, the last day of Ramadan is a particular holiday and and has its own name and I'm I won't say it again because I'll screw it up but uh but you know if you're off that day I think it'd be really good to say why you're off that day because I think it creates obvious respect for the people of that religion because the school district of people who are not of that religion said oh we recognize this is important to you and we wouldn't do it if you weren't important to us so you know, I think that's great. And I think it's education in a way. Instead, we have decided that somehow if you're Catholic, you can't stand to ever hear that Martin Luther nailed some stuff on a German church. You just can't. Oh, it's just too upsetting or something. Or if you're Jewish, maybe you can't, but you can't bear to know that some people think there was, you know, the Messiah's already come. It, it's, you know, it, it's just silly beyond all belief. And, and we know that because we lived for a number of decades in a different world in which people knew that about each other. And, and it just, it, it, this, is, this is pretending that our differences are not fun, are not exciting. It's like, I've never understood kind of people who wouldn't want diversity because it's like you're always wanting something new, even if it's like with music. I love all the old songs. Of course I want it. I want on my, uh, you know, if I'm on an airplane, I'm listening to old songs. Um, but don't you want occasionally a new song so that it'd be something different? And that's, you know, it seems to me that's the way I, I look at the world. I guess that has really nothing to do. <laughs> that's just my particular preference. But it's, it strikes me here that it is, it's this attitude that our differences are somehow so troubling that we have to get away from them, that we can't be trusted with each other because we don't agree on everything. And the world has been that way all along, and we've gotten along a, a, a pretty darn well. And, and this is something else that I think is important. Throughout this pandemic, we saw it, but it, outside of that too, 
there is this view sometimes that America is a racist country and that it's important that you say it's a racist country or it's important that you say it's not a racist country. And of course, America as a country isn't a being, it doesn't exist. So neither of those, of course, have any real validity in the real world, but there are people. And, and it, it seems to me that you can't look at the world around us and think that somehow racial disharmony in the United States is some aberration. Um, we, for all of time, as much as I personally like food from a lot of other countries other than just Ireland and England and like music from all over and so on, some people don't. Some people don't like people who don't look like them. And throughout all of history, we've had problems with those, with those folks. Um, but when you think about it, the place I see on the globe where people, the most people of different backgrounds have come together and not just survived and gotten along enough, okay, but literally meshed is in America. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't learn our history. Let's learn it all. It doesn't mean you don't call out bad behavior or that you pretend that somehow we're so exceptional, we never do anything wrong. That's insanity too. But this idea that this is the worst of all possible worlds, there, you know, there's a lot of sexism in the world. It's all bad. The, the sexism in the United States is bad. But it's less, it seems to me, than almost anywhere else. Racism is bad everywhere because any of it, any of it is bad. But isn't it less in the United States, in essence, where we are living together? I mean, there, there might be more less racism in a country where every single person is the same race because they, then they find other things to pick at each other over. But <clears throat> this sort of attitude is it's literally kind of like creating this completely gaslit society in which we have to pretend we've committed all kinds of crimes we never committed. And that's, that's really the, you know, the bottom line to all this critical race theory. I mean, people are using that to kind of name, which is not exactly the right name, but it, it fits. Uh, it, it works. They're using that to name this idea that everyone's an oppressor because of their skin color, if they're white, or not an oppressor if they're black, or this because they're Asian, or this because they're Latino. That is complete bull. People recognize it. And the only way it survives is for people to shut up and for those who believe in it to keep creating this pretend Potemkin village kind of thing where, oh, yes, it's everywhere. And every academic tells you, yes, that's how the world was put together. It's crap. And more and more people, regular people are going to push back on it. I, I was discussing with a liberal friend of mine that I think critical race theory is arguably the best issue that Republicans have. It is an issue that matters to real people. And the only reason there hasn't been more of a backlash is because more people don't have kids in the school and more people aren't tied into that. But as soon as people find out about it, they hate it. And I can tell you the, the I'm, I, I went to rallies, I marched last summer in what could have been called a BLM protest. I don't know who set it up. They were protesting against, you know, bad criminal justice and I'm against bad criminal justice and in favor of good. And so I went, but, uh, but when I saw over the summer, several different incidents uh, and it just kind of surprised me how much it upset me, but I saw the incidents of people being accosted outside diners and told that they needed to say somebody's name or Rand Paul who was accosted, you know, leaving the White House uh, and, and, and you need to raise your fist. And it, with the idea being, I'm telling you, you better do that. And the implication being, I might smack you in the mouth if you don't do it. And I realized in those situations, I'm kind of generally uh, not good at doing things I'm ordered to do. 
it's like just really difficult. Even if I wanted to do it, all of a sudden it's very tough. And I realized if I were in one of those situations, I'm not raising my fist. At least I hope I wouldn't. I hope I wouldn't just be cowed by the mob and raise my fist, even though I don't mind saying this person's name. I'm sad as hell that they got killed by some policeman. I've been fighting against that. But of course you wouldn't let a mob just make you a, a nothing. And of course, that's where does that come from? What do you think of when you think of a mob beating people up or forcing people to, you think of like the Weimar Republic in Germany and the Nazis and the communists like fighting each other. You do not think of American discourse politically. You don't. And, and to see that, I just, you know, I, I just was so taken aback. And, and I think when people see that the debate is over, uh, not that, and I'm not saying the debate about criminal justice because American people are overwhelmingly for criminal justice, all parties, all political views, races, sexes, everything else. But I'm talking about if, if critical race theory is connected up on the side of the people who want to threaten and intimidate people as part of some cultural revolution, the American people are not going to be with you. And that, I think that that it, it could be the biggest issue in the next election, and it will cut hugely for Republicans. I may have lost track of this, but haven't we moved now to the A word in our schools from the 15th? Yes, we have. Okay, I wasn't sure what was going on here because that was that was a remarkably subtle uh, uh, transition. <laughs> I don't remember you saying, oh, now we're going to talk about the next one. If you did, I certainly have missed it. <laughs> no, although um, it, it is interesting because the the schools, of course, it's not just colleges. You know, I think a lot of Americans have kind of given up about colleges because who knows what crazy thing they're going to teach next. They're teaching this in high schools. They're teaching this in grade schools. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's out there and it's all over the country and it's in, you know, it's in my area of the country, but I, I think it's in your area too. And, and you see it pop up different places. I don't think that's where it is. I think that's where it's being fought. I think it's almost everywhere. Um, but it's, it, it's interesting. The, um, you know, the, this, there's there's a game played sort of about critical race theory that that oh well you don't understand the theory or it's not really about you know it's about studying our history um, but it is designed to say our history is systemically racist and what is meant by that is that somehow we couldn't help but be racist because the whole society is built that way, meaning it has to be ripped down to the, you know, we, we need a pile of nails and screws and bolts and, and torn up wood and metal. We need to destroy everything and start again. And, uh, and it's interesting on, on this piece, uh, the A word in our schools, uh, there was an article in Reason um, and uh, a guy named Scott, is, is it Scott? I can't see it now. Yes, Scott. Yes, yeah, Scott Shackford. Uh, and we, he's written stuff before. Uh, and you've commented on his stuff before too. Yes, yes. And and Reason has a lot of good stuff. And and usually we agree you know, almost 100% with it. Uh, and here, the point he's making is not so much that I disagree with the point. I just think it's important to step back and and look at it from a different perspective. But he makes the point that um, that basically we shouldn't be attacking critical race theory so much because it will cause people to see how screwed up the schools are and to demand school choice. And of course, there's, there's an element of truth to that. Uh, usually the people who decide I want school choice or I want to homeschool or whatever, it's because they had some problem. I mean, you got a free school system here. If it works, you're, you're likely to use it. Um, but one, we, we don't really want, you know, I've heard this for years, you know, maybe, uh, maybe we want the worst 
big government person who will drive us over the cliff at 80 miles an hour so it'll wake everybody up. And I always think, what if they don't wake up in time? So I don't think we want to let everything go to hell so that we can build back better. That's sort of the, the other side here, which is not to let everything go to hell, but make everything go to hell. Um, we want to get rid of this. We, we want to get rid of any sort of we're going to mold students into some sort of different thinking creatures. I always thought the idea of education was to teach people to think and to teach people to acquire information about which, which to consider and think and then decide. And <laughs> that's kind of gone out the, out the window. I think CRT is a cult. And I, I look at almost everything that the left is giving out these days is more like a religion than a, than normal anything. And I want to separate all religions from state. And I don't think CRT should be in schools any more than I think that there should be forced public prayers to Allah or Jesus or anybody. Right. I, I, there are reasons why you want religion out of the schools and why schools are problematic because of the importance of religion for people's lives. And there's a reason why public schools are probably bad just as such. Uh, and and but, it's an argument for school choice. Right. Because, because look, let people choose. You know, I can't tell you that what you believe is crazy, even if right. I maybe think that. Right. Uh, I mean, I could tell you, but it's your right. And, and that's why you can't teach everybody out of one songbook. Um, in a pluralistic society, if you really believe in diversity, well, then you would want people to have diverse options. Uh, so that's but that oddly isn't what they're after, uh, because the argument from the left these days, and that's the Democrats, the center on left, and which is just most and half the Republican Party too, is that we talk about diversity so we can increase the size of government. We want government, more government to be involved in more people's lives and diversity is somehow important for that. And my point of view, and I think yours too, is that diversity is great, but you could only have diversity, cultural diversity, true diversity, if government provides very few services. Because, because of the nature of diverse cultures, when there's a big pot commons to share, without a com without an without a shared culture people began to bleed the commons you get the tragedy of the commons you get right. you get overuse of the commons and that's that's one of the reasons why you want government to do very little that's why i actually want government out of education right to be, to be like that's one of the things we don't want we shouldn't be fighting over this kind of thing uh, about government over what you believe about race I mean, well, why can't why can't everybody have the sort of education they want to have? Right. Why can't they have the right. choice? And of course, some people would say because some people believe things I don't like that are bad, racism or other things. Of course, some people might think they believe some things like communism that's not very good. But and and so their argument is we'd need a state to to literally browbeat people into believing what we want them to believe. Well. There are a lot of countries like that around the world. You might have to speak Mandarin, but I know one you could go to. I mean, come on, that we can't force everyone to think the same. And, and especially somehow if you're talking about diversity, forcing everybody to think the same just doesn't quite fit. But there, there's another element here that I wanted to bring in because early on in the climate change, back when it was global warming, um, I remember my brother, uh, who, who sometimes has a very quick take on things that I like, uh, said, you know, I don't know that much about the problem, but when the immediate solution is for government to expand dramatically and take over huge parts of, you know, the economy, I question whether the problem is really a problem worthy of that solution. And it's the same thing here it's pretty obvious to see that this is a theory and this whole point of view coming at people 
is designed where the only solution is for the government to literally have scales and decide everybody's soul. And I mean, it, this, this makes the French Revolution and the Cultural Revolution in China seem like, you know, child's play. They weren't very serious. And, and you know, this doesn't end well. So it's, it's, to me, you don't have to understand exactly what critical race theory is or how you can apply it to this or that. If the solution is to make race everything about somebody, well, then you know right off the bat. I mean, if everything's race, you are denying people any individuality beyond that. Well, that that doesn't make any sense. And we all know it doesn't make any sense. I mean, the, the truth is there aren't, you know, there's, there's a lot of people in Washington who will say nonsense makes sense because they're paid heavily to do it. But in the real world out there in America, I don't think that these ideas in the light of day attract 10% support. Um, and, and it's not, and of course, some people would say, well, that's what some white person is going to say, but in the black man, well, the truth is, you know, I, I, I have a number of friends who are black. Uh, I know people and my experience has been that this is not coming from black people. I know, and I'm not talking about, you know, they're, I know most of the black folks I know are more conservative. They're more in my political circles because that's where I meet people. But I know, I know plenty who are way on the left. They're not talking this way. They don't think this way. This is a highly educated, developed, uh, highbrow, white, privileged view of the world. Even as it's hitting white privilege, it is designed because of its Marxist strategy, which is you separate, you destroy, you so that you can rebuild and you give the state ever more power to decide these. And how do you wreck, how do you get a country like America to accept socialism? Well, they tried it on kind of the economic good sense that socialism makes, and they did not win. They did not convince a lot of people. So, you know, here's somewhere where you're going at people's moral compass. And the truth is, Americans have, you know, in, in a collective way, I think our moral compass is pretty good. We give a lot to charity. We care about people. When they show TV commercials of suffering animals, you know, I don't even like cats that much, but I'm pretty, I'm pretty upset. Uh, we're, good, we're, we're good folks by and large. And, uh, and so anyway, I won't go into a long thing about how, what good folks we are. We're not really exceptional. Uh, we were lucky enough to live in an exceptional place because of the laws and the system and uh, at an exceptional time. And it seems like we have some duty to kind of, you know, leave the world not, not worse than we found it. Very good. And I think we could end the podcast right there. Cool. Leave the podcast uh, not, not worse than we found it. There we are. There we are. Uh, people should remember to go to thisiscommonsense.org, right? Yes, they should. Five days a week, you write something. There are other features. On the weekends, we put up the podcast. That's, That's right. And those other features, uh, people might enjoy. Uh, one thing we do is that we have a quote every day, thought of the day, uh, which is always fun. Uh, but we also have a today, what happened in history this day, uh, that has some impact on freedom and and uh, that kind of good stuff. So a lot at the website, this is commonsense.org. And, uh, you know, soon we'll be tracking you and we'll know whether you came to the website or not. So come on, shape up. <laughs> yeah, and people can actually do a few things. Uh, one thing they can subscribe to what you write uh, so they can get an email letter uh, That's right. rather than having to remember to go to the website. So there is that. And that's probably a good idea because, uh, some of our social media, you're on social media, you're on Facebook, right. for instance. Common Sense with Paul Jacob on, on Facebook. You can go there every morning and, and uh, see it. And, uh, but, you know, sometimes Facebook doesn't, isn't nice to us. So if, you're, if you subscribe <laughs> to the newsletter, 
version, then you might get something uh, that you're sure to get. That's right. When they when they hit the kill switch, you might still get it. So yeah, uh, right. I mean, email was designed to withstand a nuclear uh, disaster, so maybe it would, will uh, withstand uh, a Biden administration. Um, and uh, and then there's uh, at the website also a PDF of everything you write. If uh, five days a week, there's a PDF of each of our article. So old so people very, like me can print it out. Right, you can print it out. I mean, you can even make a book on your own. And just have a, but more importantly, you can send it easily to a friend. Uh, sometimes people will read a PDF when they won't read something else. Yes. Uh, that's, it's just some, another way of uh, imbibing what you do. So there you are. Um, uh, imbibing. That sounds like a good word as we're closing here. Yeah. You know, I think I put, I think I put up my whiskey back there. I think somewhere. Uh, behind, that, that's serious imbibing. That's, that, I, I don't know if I'll do it. I've been taking a lot of drugs today. Uh, pain medication so i don't know uh, if you're supposed to do that they always say with pain medication you're not supposed to have any alcohol but i don't know I, I, are they saying that i think they're right in this case maybe uh, the first case of them saying it where it was ever <laughs> actually true <laughs> okay well anyway uh talk to you later thank you tim <laughs>